G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Last night, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, delivered the federal budget. At a glance, it looks like a budget full of good news, but with a federal election only potentially weeks away, it's a pre-election budget not designed to bring any pain and full of promises that make life easier for Australians. It looks like good news for middle-income earners, for small businesses, for regional Australia, for pensioners, apprentices, infrastructure and the environment. But there may be some issues that are important in the coming year that may draw our attention as Christians. Uh, Last year, budget expectations were that GDP growth would be 3%. But growth has been slower than forecast. The picture for wages growth in Australia is also sluggish. The tax cuts appear like a gap filler in place of the growth of wages. House prices have been on the way down. And so a softer property market affects everything from investment to household consumption. And then there are the wider global issues also on the radar. Well, talking through some of these issues today, it's been a wonderful privilege this past half hour to have been able to access some great insights and wisdom from Gavin Martin, the founder and managing director of Cornerstone Wealth in Melbourne. This coming half hour, a little bit of a different focus. We're going to get an idea of some big picture uh, thoughts from economist Dr. Rod St. Hill. Rod is a CEO of the Leaders Institute, a government-accredited higher private, a private higher education provider in Brisbane. He's also senior pastor and director of Ignite Life Business and Ignite Life Church on the Gold Coast in Queensland, part of the Australian Christian Churches. And I must say a special welcome to 2020 to you, Rod St. Hill. G'day, Neil. It's great to be with you. Uh, Rod, let me just start a a quick general impression. As you know, you heard the Treasurer saying, uh, you know, we're back in the black. I notice you've got a black shirt on today. I don't know whether that's in solidarity with the Treasurer, but uh, what were your thoughts when you you started to see the Treasurer begin to unpack the budget? Well, it's quite interesting because I actually listened to his speech as I was driving home from work, and uh, I sensed a good deal of passion in his delivery. He went a few minutes over, of course. He was about nine minutes over the half hour that's traditionally used. And uh, he made much of the fact that he was able to increase spending in a number of areas without increasing taxes. But what it means, of course, is that government is not getting any smaller. Okay. Government's not getting smaller. Government continues to grow. Uh, typically, it would be a more conservative position to have a smaller government, uh, but there was no no cuts uh, government size because that would cause pain for some. Do you think that's part of the... Oh, look, I think that that's, that's part of it. Um, we're right at the end of the uh, election cycle, of course, and uh, there's an election looming. So you wouldn't expect a government to deliver too much bad news. But um, they have managed to um, announce a surplus for the coming year. It's a tiny surplus, of course, but it is a surplus nevertheless, so they're heading in the right direction. And uh, they did manage some minor tax reform, 
and I think that's a good thing as well. And extending the, the write-offs for small investments of up to $30,000 to businesses with turnover of $50 million or less, I think, is also a very good move. So they've done some pretty good things economically, and um, I guess it remains to be seen whether or not it makes a difference as far as the politics of the situation is concerned. Uh, Rod, there's quite a few handouts in the budget. None of us are, you know, we don't mind a, a handout, uh, do we? We like to receive some dollars in our hand. Uh, but there is this uh, this idea that uh, wages are not growing as fast as they ought to, and it looks as though it's like a stopgap measure, a gap filler, to give people the impression that uh, a few extra dollars in the pocket to be able to re- meet those weekly expenses. Uh, but what are your thoughts for the fact that the wages haven't increased the way that the government in the last budget predicted that they would? Yes. And then yes. is this sustainable and is this likely to kick in? Well, we certainly have had low wage growth, particularly in the private sector, which has tended to lag behind the public sector. But on the other hand, we've had very low rates of inflation overall, where lower income households are hurting, of course, is in things like uh, utilities bills, their water, their rates, and uh, importantly, electricity as well. And uh, really, the electricity market is in a terrible, terrible mess, and it's because of government policy. Regardless of the political flavour of the government, governments have made an absolute mess of energy policy, and there's no indication that it's going to get much better into the future, regardless of who happens to be on the Treasury benches. So I'm not anywhere nearly as concerned about low wage growth as a lot of people are. It reflects low productivity growth. So um, I'm not surprised that wages growth is quite low. The government has uh, predicted a slight increase in wages growth over the next 12 months, and that's quite consistent with what they're predicting in terms of the labour market overall. But the reason why wages are not growing in Australia is because productivity has stalled. And uh, in order to get productivity going, we need a lot more business investment. And uh, that's one of that, to me, that's much more important than wages growth because wages growth is actually the outcome of slow business investment. Tomorrow night, the Leader of the Opposition will deliver his budget reply, and even in commentary that I've read and seen, you have the Leader of the Opposition promising that that productivity will increase more under Labor's policies. I wonder whether you've got an impression there, uh, given the government, uh, given the Opposition's promises uh, for uh, a whole lot higher taxes, it seems, uh, whether that productivity is something that they can either uh, organically or artificially start. Well, actually, um, ironically, I was looking at a list of um, Labor Party, I guess, promises and commitments on tax and expenditures in the coming in the coming years. There's nothing in there that's going to increase business investment at all. If anything, it'll go the other way. So, I I don't really think that it's going to make much difference to wages who's in government over the next few years. The key is productivity, and to get productivity up, you must have an increase in business investment. Rod, I want to ask you one of your areas of expertise, and uh, you're now in the position as CEO at the Leaders Institute, and one of the focuses you have uh, in this new role is agribusiness. And for listeners in regional communities all around the nation, uh, there were, uh, you know, what, what were your thoughts for uh, for the way that the government has uh, pointed? You know, there's dollars for infrastructure and uh, there's issues there with uh, uh, drought and such things. Uh, any thoughts for uh, for the, uh, the yes, regional look, communities? Um, other than um, some allocations for regional infrastructure and uh, obviously continuing allocations that have already already been committed to um, in relation to drought and, and flood and so on, 
Uh, there's not a lot in there. Uh, most of the infrastructure investment is to ease congestion in the major cities, particularly Melbourne and Sydney. That's a good thing. Um, I'm going to be very bold and probably upset a lot of people and say what I actually think the government should be doing, and they haven't done it, they should be putting a lot of money into some feasibility studies to do something about drought-proofing our nation. And I say that partly because they're not reducing immigration by very much. I believe if we're going to maintain high rates of immigration, we must make inland Australia more habitable. And uh, for people to go and live there, we need to make sure that we do something about water. So it's a good thing that the government is investing money in feasibility studies for, for um, fast rail and so on. I, th- I really do think it's about time we got much, much more serious about water infrastructure because that's what's holding up the development of many of our regional areas. I do note too that uh, the farming lobby, the National Farmers Federation, was wanting a specialised agricultural visa and as you're suggesting here, that comprehensive national drought policy and those don't seem to have eventuated uh, with any funding from the budget. So uh, so there's some there's some areas where the government might see a little bit of a, a shortfall in the way that they're meeting the needs of Australians and it could come down to, as, uh, as is your area of expertise here, in agribusiness. There is a difficulty. There is a seasonal shortage of workers in uh, in agribusiness. It's been the case for a long time now. Uh, Australians simply don't want to do a lot of that work. It is seasonal work, it's pretty hard work, and it also means you've got to move away from home for a short period of time. And uh, I don't think any government has satisfactorily addressed the issue of that short-term labour shortage in uh, agricultural and horticultural industries. Uh, Let's keep on the regions for a few moments. And uh, we did mention some infrastructure spending. Uh, Obviously, while uh, there might be uh, issues with uh, visas, there might be issues with drought policies, uh, the way that the government does seem to be moving and uh, putting dollars into infrastructure for roads, uh, clearly that is a helpful thing for farmers. Yes, it is. And uh, there's some funding also to uh, replace bridges. And I don't know whether many people are aware of this, but one of the reasons why transporting um, grain and other agricultural products is expensive in Australia is that we have a lot of bridges that uh, trucks can't get over. I can't get under, I should say, a lot of railway bridges and so on. And um, so upgrading in that area will help. It'll help cut cost of transport, which is a major factor in uh, in agribusiness. The um, uh, continuing funding for things like the inland rail scheme, that's a good thing. Um, it has been estimated that if we can get more product on rail, that could save up to $70 million in transport costs. Rod, we were talking about some of the things that could go wrong and with the predictions that the government has for this budget to outwork and for everything to go right, things need to remain stable. Give us your insights, your thoughts about you know things that could go wrong globally, the China situation, growth slowing there, other issues that might be impacting on our own economy in Australia, even the likes of Brexit. I mean, these sorts of things when it comes to trade, have major effects on an economy like Australia, uh, there's all sorts of things could go wrong. Well, that's true, uh, but that's true every year as well. I, uh, I feel pretty sorry for the folk in Treasury who are expected to actually get their forecast correct to two decimal points. <laughs> that's within one hundredth of a percent uh, in many cases. I've had a look at the, uh, the, uh, all, all of the assumptions that underlie the budget. I actually think they're pretty good. Uh, they have taken into account things like the slowdown in global growth. They have taken into account a slowdown in dwelling investment and so on. Um, 
So I don't agree with some of the commentators who are saying that the the underlying assumption on economic growth is far too high, but it is risky. And I do agree with you uh, that there are two big risks, I think, other than the general slowdown in economic growth, which is happening pretty much worldwide. What happens in relation to Brexit does matter because that's going to cause all sorts of ructions both in Europe and, of course, in the United Kingdom. At the moment, there's a good deal of uncertainty about that, and markets hate uncertainty, so that's going to cause problems in and of itself. I think the other looming issue for us is the trade talks between China and the United States, and there is some evidence that China might be gearing up to swap coal purchases from uh, Australia to the United States. And uh, that would have a massive impact on our exports if that actually happens. And, of course, that would then feed through to our GDP. That, In other words, the income that we generate as a nation over the coming year. And that, of course, flows through to jobs and to wage rates and all sorts of things. So that's a big risk for us. And uh, I, I haven't seen any analysis in the budget of that particular risk. So we have this forecast of a $7.1 billion surplus and we wonder whether that's a conservative estimate, uh, whether it might actually even do better than that uh, ultimately or whether that may be a hopeful, uh, extravagant idea of uh, an expectation that might be unreal. What are your thoughts about uh, the figures as you've uh, looked at those as to whether this is a realistic sustainable way of um, putting a budget in place. Is that uh, What are your thoughts there? Uh, well, again, they're expected to get within you know a few hundred million dollars of an estimate of the budget outcome, and there are so many elements in that budget that it's very, very difficult. I, I would say basically they've got a balanced budget, and this year will be basically balanced as well. It's going to be a bit of a deficit. Next year will be a bit of a surplus. I think the important thing, though is that they are committed to keeping the tax take below 23.9%. And uh, that will allow us to gradually pay down debt, I think, over the next 10 years or so, which is pretty important. Uh, prior to the global financial crisis, we had a bit of a war chest because we'd paid off all of our net debt. We don't have such a war chest now, should there be an unexpected downturn internationally. And I think it's important that we, we focus on both reducing our, our debt and to reducing the size of government. And so a decade, do you think it's a realistic expectation that the government says they can pay down net debt in a decade? Uh, given the size of the surpluses, it doesn't look like the numbers add up to paying down that much debt. Uh, but uh, how does that work? Is it, uh, is it something that uh, the government is on track for? Do you well, think? look, it's all, it's all based on modelling, and the modelling is as good as the assumptions. And the further into the future you look, the more risk there is that some of the key data won't turn out the way you'd like it to. I'm quite sympathetic to the government, any government, on these grounds because it doesn't make any difference what the political flavour of government is. They face exactly the same the same problems. So I don't get too excited about slaps on the back or criticisms over things like that. The issue is that they're heading in the right direction. They are and they have been. And I say that particularly because this government has been fairly disciplined in keeping the rate of government expenditure down. 
Right, let's talk about being a Christian and making an adequate assessment of the sorts of things that we're hearing from our political leaders. And, you know, perhaps it depends on which side of politics you like to uh, to fall onto as to who you're believing. But as a Christian, sometimes we say, let's uh, let's take ourselves above the whole uh, regime of what's happening and uh, try and make an assessment. This idea of being uh, critical in your thinking about how they are telling us what's happening, because there is a certain sense in which uh, cynicism comes because people feel as though somehow or other we're being manipulated. It's a pre-election budget. Uh, things look rosy. Things look good. Uh, that'll be the government's pitch. Uh, but, you know, there's also those thoughts that somehow or other there's a bit of manipulation in there because somehow the NDIS figures uh, came in under what the government had budgeted for and so therefore something like $3 billion or more dollars sort of goes towards the budget bottom line. What about manipulation in all of that? As Christians, what should we be thinking? Are we to be cynical? Are we to be sceptical? What are your thoughts on a Christian thinking about budgets? Well, I actually think the most important thing is to pray for our government. That's what we're commanded to do. And uh, I, I don't think that we really add much to our society by simply being critical or by saying the government should do more here or do do less there or whatever. Um, so the first thing is a Christian, we need to be committed to praying for the government, that the government would be a righteous government, that the government would actually hear from God and implement policies that are going to contribute positively to human flourishing. My own personal perspective is that the biblical view is that wealth creation should be something that happens in the private sector. And so I would tend to judge a government's budget and the government's policies overall on the basis of whether or not they are likely to make it more e- easier for business to create wealth through improving productivity, getting products out into the market that uh, contribute to human flourishing without so much red tape, green tape and any other kind of tape you might think of. And there's a certain sense, isn't there, that as Christians we can have a level of objectivity that others can't because if we do take ourselves a little bit out of the equation and we can look at each each side objectively, uh, I mean, tomorrow night the leader of the opposition is going to deliver his uh, uh, budget reply and so uh, he'll obviously try and fine-tune and tweak and make his presentation better than the government's presentation. There is a sense here, and just talking about this idea of having Christian faith, uh, Rod, that our faith is not in the government to deliver, but our faith is in God to deliver for the nation. What are your thoughts about where we put our trust or the sorts of anxieties and fears that we might have about, you know, whether we're getting an extra handout or whether we're going to be able to pay the bills next week. What are your thoughts yeah, well, on the Christian Well, the Greek position? word pistis is translated faith in the Bible. It appears some 244 times, and it actually would be better translated today as the word trust, trust based on the evidence we have of the truth of the word of God and the truth that God exists. And uh, I see God as our provider and as our protector, not the government. We should pray for the government, but we should not expect that it would be the government that would sustain us. It's God who sustains us. If we fall into trouble and we become uh, a beneficiary of the social welfare system, then we can praise God that it actually exists and uh, in Australia is more generous than it is in other countries. However, on the other hand, it does bother me as a Christian 
that over three quarters, it's nearly 77% of the personal income tax take is simply social welfare. So all we're doing is we're taking income from some people and giving it to other people. And that does not improve productivity. It does not improve private sector wealth creation. Ultimately, it does not make us better off as a nation. The biblical principle, I believe, is, is the principle of gleaning. And I do think business has a role here. Uh, gleaning en- enables people who don't have any means of supporting themselves to do so with dignity. The social welfare system misses out on the dignity part. Let's talk about this in relation to wages. This is where the rubber hits the road for all of us. Uh, we'd all like a wage rise. Uh, we know that wages growth has been sluggish. And, uh, you know, there's some predictions it's going to increase, but uh, Labor will be saying tomorrow night, no doubt, that they'll be able to supercharge that and make that happen. And one of the ways that Bill Shorten will do that, will he'll, he'll be talking about a living wage, which is somewhat higher than a minimum wage. Uh, what are your thoughts for uh, whether that is, in fact, an answer for people or uh, whether that will be something that obviously will win some votes from people who just want a, a higher wage but not sure where that's going to be able to be generated? Well, the problem I have with that is the government doesn't pay that bill. That That is going to be paid by businesses, and, and businesses themselves are doing it tough. Small businesses are doing it tough. People trying to make a living out of running a business and offering some other people employment. It's pretty tough for them as well. Um, that's one reason why I think increasing the investment, uh, the 100% write-off for small investments is a good idea uh, in small and medium-sized businesses. So the idea of the living wage is quite a good idea, but the issue is who pays for it. And I think if a government is going to implement a living wage concept, it should actually be more through what they call the social wage, which is made up of market wages, what you earn in your job, plus social welfare. And then that, of course, has to be paid for. And uh, I don't agree with the the policy of increasing social welfare payments and paying for that by taxing other people. So given that, already 77% of personal income tax simply goes to other people through transfer payments. This would only increase that. I think that's a huge break on our economy. Um, about two-thirds of the, the, the total tax take, in fact, it's more, it's more like 70% of the total tax take is what I would call a tax on production. That makes producing income less attractive to businesses. And uh, we really need to look very carefully at swinging some of our tax effort away from taxing production to taxing spending. And we don't tax spending anywhere nearly enough in Australia. Okay, good thoughts. And you know what? We've run out of time. A final thought from you, because I know that not only are you an economist, you've got a political mindset here too. And uh, your thoughts perhaps on whether, given that the government is trailing so much in the polls behind Labor, uh, that there might be some what people call an election bounce that comes from the budget. Uh, I've heard a few sort of con- uh, contradictory uh, thoughts from different commentators here. What are your thoughts? Uh, is the electorate likely to see this as a good thing for the coalition? Uh, will they see it as some sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a vote grab, a big spending budget that, you know, what are your thoughts for uh, whether there'll be some sort of election bounce in this? Look, that's really difficult because I'm not a political scientist and I spend a lot more time thinking about the economics of the situation. But I would say this as a Christian pastor, I I don't think the economics is the most important thing in this election. 
I actually think the most important thing is to put people in the parliament who are least likely to do damage to what we believe as Christians. And now that's a big call. And uh, I think we have to look really, really carefully at individuals who are putting themselves up for election, electorate by electorate. And I believe our responsibility, it's not so much what I'm going to get in my pocket or even the size of the deficit or anything that I might be interested in as an economist, but we have to ask ourselves the question, who is least likely to undermine biblical principles? So this idea that we're often inclined to be tempted by the trinkets that people are handing to us, but really when there are bigger issues like the large social issues of family, of marriage, of the unborn, of uh, the issues of the elderly. Uh, those sorts of things are the things that often will guide a Christian in the way that they'll cast their vote. And uh, oftentimes uh, we tend to not vote according to our Christian conscience uh, when there's a temptation for a trinket or a handout. But uh, as you're saying here, Rodson Hill, uh, I think very wisely, uh, choose who you vote for according to the social policies of the government because some of those that are coming out, and you might argue on both sides, uh, less than perfect, uh, but uh, some policies are worse than others and a good thing to look into. Uh, Rodson Hill, thank you so much for taking some time today to uh, let us in on some insights here. An economist, the CEO of Leaders Institute, a government-accredited private higher education provider in Brisbane. Uh, Rod is also the senior pastor and director of Ignite Life Business at Ignite Life Church on the Gold Coast, part of the Australian Christian Churches. Uh, you can get in touch with Rod through Leaders Institute, leaders.edu.au, leaders.edu.au. Rod St. Hill, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us today on 2020. You're very welcome, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.